Welcome to PwC's Next in Health podcast. I'm Ben Isger, leader of PwC's Health Research Institute. And today we have Trina Tsideros with us, who leads our regulatory center. Welcome, Trina. Thanks for having me, Ben. Great to be here. Well, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been together. We take a little break for the Thanksgiving holidays, but the pandemic did not take a break. And a few things to talk about. I think we know that the cases are surging, but you were taking a look at some of the models and what we're seeing from that and the importance of models. Would you like to fill us in on what's been happening? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think if you think back to the beginning of the pandemic, there were a few models out there, but not a lot. And those models disagreed with each other quite a bit, actually. And there was a lot of talk about which model was most accurate, what kinds of inputs should go into models, and these kinds of things. And I think one bright spot in the pandemic is that we have a lot of models now And they do not necessarily all agree entirely, but it is possible now to sort of create an ensemble combined forecast. And that is exactly what the CDC has done. And so now the CDC has up on its website a national forecast combining the forecasts of lots of different models. And so that should give us sort of a consensus about what might be happening in the next couple of weeks. These models that the CDC puts together and pulls together don't go out months and months and months, but it does give us a sense of what all these models are saying about what we can expect, say, through the end of the year, through the next couple of weeks. I'll say that the combined forecast for new weekly deaths on the CDC website, combining all these different models, is a pretty dire prediction in that we could be seeing something like between 10 and 15 15,000 new weekly deaths over the next couple of weeks. And that's what these models are telling us. And I think one of the, the things that's changed over the pandemic and the reason that we have all these models and that they are starting to agree with one another in some ways is that we just have more experience with the way that the virus transmits and what we can expect going forward. So that's one bright spot is that we have a better crystal ball. Well, I'm glad we had at least one bright spot there. One thing I'll mention as you were talking about models is for our listeners, we will be releasing our top health industry issues of 2021. That's our big annual report about what we expect will be happening in the health industries in the coming year. We'll be releasing that on December 16th. And in fact, one of the areas we're going to talk about is around modeling and the capabilities around modeling. So stay tuned if you are listening more to come on that. Let's switch over now to what's happening with our state Medicaid programs. I know we do try to cover this from time to time because Medicaid is such an important part of healthcare coverage in the U.S., And the pandemic and the ensuing economic changes around it have made a big difference to our state Medicaid programs. So Trina, what have you found out about those over the last week? Yeah, I think it's worth watching. One thing we know is that over the course of the pandemic, state budgets have taken a huge hit. Tax revenues are down when you have businesses that are closed or shut down temporarily or have to operate at limited capacity. They pull in less revenue and they send less of that back to the state in the form of taxes. People are unemployed and so their wages are going to the state budgets less in the form of taxes. 
So all of this has led to some very dire situations for state budgets. And one of the biggest budget items for states is Medicaid. And so what we are starting to see are states making cuts in terms of services they're offering to residents, not Medicaid services, but overall state services. They're cutting down on infrastructure projects and they're even laying off workers. And we're beginning to see the fallout of that now. And if this continues without some kind of significant federal aid that we could see Medicaid take a hit in the next year. Because in the end, when you're cutting all kinds of things, Medicaid, it's your biggest budget item in some cases. It's something that you know lawmakers will take a look at. And so I think it's worth watching to see what happens with state Medicaid programs as we go forward into the new year, especially if we don't get an aid package out of Washington that includes a lot of aid for state budgets. There's just nowhere that states can turn really to bolster their budgets without severely raising taxes on their constituents, which we don't see a lot of appetite for. And so, you know, we'll be watching that here in HRI for sure is what happens with the state Medicaid programs into the new year. Well, Trina, you mentioned while talking about the state Medicaid programs that some of this is being driven by unemployment and layoffs. So we've got some new numbers out around that recently. Why don't you walk us through what that looks like? So at the beginning of the pandemic, I think we all remember the lockdowns and the falling off of a cliff of jobs huge numbers of people out of work, some furloughed, so temporarily out of work, some permanently laid off. And over the course of the pandemic, we've seen month after month jobs start to come back. But that has slowed in recent months. I'd say if we're looking at job numbers, we've seen a slowdown starting in the late summer and continuing into September, October. And we just got recent job numbers out of the Bureau of Labor Statistics showing November job growth. And it's just pretty small. And so we are still short a lot of jobs in this country compared to where we were pre-pandemic. And so that means a lot of folks going into the holiday season, going into next year, who are out of work. We also know a lot of people have dropped out of the workforce, are just not looking for jobs any longer. They've sort of either given up or they need to care for their kids who are remote learning, that kind of thing. We also are seeing an increase in the number of people who have been unemployed for a long period of time, 27 weeks or longer. And that number keeps on going up and up and up as people continue to not have a job and continue to be unemployed even as this crisis continues on. We're hitting a deadline at the end of this year where a lot of benefits are going to expire. And so I think there'll be a lot of people watching to see what happens in the new year with the economy and with the unemployment rate and with things like people being evicted from their apartments due to being unable to pay rent, things like that. We're going to see sort of what happens next year with the economy being impacted by this continued issue with jobs. Well, I think that's a good overview of the overall unemployment numbers. I guess my question to you would be, do we see the same thing in healthcare employment or is it a little bit of a different world for the health industries? 
for providers in particular, I think it's been interesting to watch what happened. So in the spring lockdown, there was a huge shedding of jobs. Physician offices closed, dentist offices closed, and they either furloughed their workers or they laid them off. And then as things opened up, we saw the steady rehiring back. And so every single month after the lockdowns, we've seen healthcare providers, particularly ambulatory healthcare services, adding jobs month after month after month. Hospitals too. The one exception to that has been nursing care facilities. And we have seen month after month, the opposite trend where nursing and residential care facilities, particularly nursing care facilities, and these are the places that are housing our most vulnerable populations when it comes to COVID-19, they have continued to shed jobs month after month after month. And so this is a worrisome sign because understaffed nursing care facilities is not really what we need going into this winter surge of the virus. And so that is something to watch, I think, in terms of the pandemic. I think also it calls into question how easily we will be able to vaccinate people who are living in nursing care facilities if they are understaffed. And so I think this is another question that will have to be solved. And it's just another piece of the complexity of this pandemic. Well, you already started stealing my thunder for my next question, which is what's happening on the vaccine front? We typically do our science for non-science majors, but actually today we really want to dig into not so much the vaccines themselves, but the prioritization and the distribution. So let's start with prioritization and can we help the listeners better understand exactly who is going to be prioritized? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll say it's important to keep in mind that states will make their own decisions about prioritization to some extent, but they will be taking advice from the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, which is also known as ACIP. And ACIP on December 1st met and discussed the prioritization for the vaccines. Who should get them first? When should the next wave get them? Who should get them in the next wave? And so on and so forth. And so I think it's pretty interesting what they decided. The first wave, the first priority, according to ASIP, should be healthcare personnel, about 21 million people. So these are the folks that are working in hospitals, long-term care facilities, outpatient clinics, home health care, pharmacies, emergency medical services, public health workers. So this large group of people should be in the first wave and long-term care facility residents. So these are the folks that are living in the facilities that I was just talking about that have been experiencing the shedding of jobs. These are people in skilled nursing facilities, assisted living facilities, other residential care, about 3 million people. And these are the most vulnerable. These are the people who are most likely to pass away from COVID-19 or experience severe outcomes from COVID-19. So we're going to prioritize, according to ASIP, the people who are coming to contact with the virus the most, the healthcare personnel, and the folks that are most likely to experience poor outcomes from infection with the virus, long-term care facility residents. Now, one interesting piece of that is that ASIP talks about 
sub-prioritization. So who amongst those healthcare personnel should be prioritized and who shouldn't? Because the truth is that we will not have enough vaccine on day one to vaccinate everybody in the top priorities, the healthcare personnel and the long-term care residents. So who do you prioritize? ASIP says that if you have to sort of sub-tier your healthcare personnel, then consider prioritizing individuals with direct patient contact who are unable to telework. So this might be personnel who provide services to patients or patients' family members, people who are handling infectious materials, people in inpatient or outpatient settings, also personnel who are working in residential care or long-term care facilities, so the staff that are interacting with our older population, and then personnel that have not had a known infection in the prior 90 days. So people that we're pretty sure are still vulnerable to the virus. So that is what ASIP says you should do if you are trying to sort of decide in your large academic medical center who to prioritize. And I think this will be very important going forward because like we said, we know that we just will not have enough on day one to take care of everybody in that first wave, you know, in that first week, even by the end of the year. Well, I think what you're bringing up is the fact that this is really complicated work. And a lot of what we hear kind of on the general news is great news in terms of the vaccines and their development. But now we're really getting into the details of how do we prioritize and for our health systems, really getting into those really great details about how you prioritize even within your own health organization. There's another major issue out there, which is when the prioritization is done, how do we actually deal with the material, the actual vaccines? And you've heard a lot about that as well over the last couple of weeks. And there's some information out there in terms of the distribution and actual vaccinations themselves. Could you tell us a little bit about what that is looking like? Yeah, yeah. So on December 2nd, Operation Warp Speed had their weekly briefing and they offered some more insight into what is going to happen. And so I think one interesting piece that we had not expected or heard much about before this is that the Department of Defense, which is sort of handling that first part of the logistics of getting the vaccines to individual states, is going to release the vaccines in pairs. So if you're still State, for instance, let's take New York State, has been allocated 170,000. That really means that they're going to get 340,000 actual vaccine doses, but only half first and then the second half later because the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine is a two-dose vaccine given weeks apart. And so what you don't want to do is give all of the vaccine doses in your first wave and then not have enough to give that second dose several weeks later. So the DOD is releasing them in pairs. They're holding back that second wave of dosing for those folks and then releasing it when that time comes. And so I think that's an interesting and complex piece of this that states will have to think about. All the health systems will have to think about. Long-term care facilities will have to think about how do we keep track of what we got? How do we keep track of who got the first dose? And then how do we make sure they get that second dose on the right time and that they get the right second dose? Because most likely we will have two vaccines with emergency use authorizations by the end of the year. And so what 
what we want to make sure is that if you got one vaccine the first time around, that you get the right second dose the second time around. And so this is extremely complicated and it will be a logistical puzzle. And we expect it might be a little bit rocky at the beginning just because it's an enormous undertaking. So uh, I think that's just an interesting piece that came out of that briefing. And we'll be watching how all this plays out over the next couple of weeks and months. I wanted to have our last topic today, just maybe a mention on some of your thoughts around vaccine hesitancy. It's an issue that has been with us throughout the pandemic, and it's coming up again as we're getting closer to vaccine distribution. It's also a personal and passionate issue for you in terms of your own research. So I was hoping you could maybe shed some light on what we're seeing with vaccine hesitancy and maybe some things we should be thinking about. Before my career here at PwC, I was a reporter and and I spent a lot of time writing about the anti-vaccine movement and spent a lot of time with folks who were worried about vaccines and attributed a lot of sort of false thoughts about vaccines to why they refuse to be vaccinated or have their children vaccinated. So we're seeing some of that rear its head here again, but we're also seeing a lot of folks who might have no trouble having their children vaccinated for other things. This talk about being hesitant about this vaccine because of the speed of its development. And so we also have, alongside that, a longstanding mistrust of the mainstream medical establishment by Black Americans in particular, who have a long history of being exploited by the medical establishment. There's a lot of reason to be mistrustful. And so these will be things that we will have to see the public health community and the medical establishment and community groups and lawmakers all work together to overcome. And it will be complex because it will not have to come from the same folks for everybody. So what you've seen is some talk about, you know, former presidents being vaccinated on camera. We've seen community groups start to talk about how they can get involved. And so we'll see how well this works over the coming months. I have a suspicion that some of the surveying that we've gotten that shows a lot of hesitancy overall, that it might be different in a few months after we have some some track record with these vaccines. But we'll see. It's a big issue. The number of people or the percentage of people who are saying that they're hesitant to get one of these vaccines is pretty high. And we're going to have to get people to not only get the vaccine once, but to get it twice for at least a couple of these different vaccine candidates. And so what happens over the next couple of months to try to get folks to do that will be really critical because we are putting a lot on these vaccines to help us end the pandemic and end this crisis. But they won't be very useful if people refuse to get vaccinated in the numbers that are necessary to cut down on transmission and sort of get us past this public health emergency. Well, I think that's a great call to action for all of us in the health community and and health industry leaders, especially when it comes to these vaccines. As we said in our recent report on vaccines, that there's a big gap between the development of a vaccine and actual vaccinations. And this is just one part of that. 
Well, Trina, you did such a nice job as always of taking us through really what's happening with the pandemic and some of the modeling around that. And I made the point that we're going to have more on that in our upcoming top issues report. We then talked about Medicaid budgets and state cuts potentially around those. And then right on into kind of the connecting tissue to that, which is unemployment and employment in the health industry and some challenges there. And then we, of course, we went into our last section on vaccines and how the prioritization is working, how the distribution may work, and then on vaccine hesitancy. So Trina, thank you very much for providing all of that to us once again. My pleasure. Well, with that, as always, almost everything we talk about, we have a bit of a deeper dive available for you. You can access that at pwc.com backslash HRI. I'll just remind you again, on December 16th, we'll be launching our top health industry issues of 2021 report. And we'll have a lot of great information in there for you. And we'll be talking about some of that on our future podcast. But for now, thank you for joining us with Next in Health. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.